Well, if this COVID pandemic has taught us anything, it's that presence can mean a lot. And when I say presence, I don't mean like gifts, like P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S. I mean being present with people. It can mean so much. And it can actually mean something very positive or something very negative. For those of you who are kind of self-isolating, quarantining, whatever, alone, like I did for the last four months, you may have gone a little stir-crazy, not being able to be present with others, whether you weren't going into the office or playing on your sports teams or going out to dinner with friends or whatever, you missed people being around. I did. I missed the presence of people. For some of you, you probably got tired of others being present if you were self-isolating or shelter in place with the same face or couple of faces for weeks and months on end. Actually, I was reading some funny tweets about that this week, about husbands and wives uh, both working from home. I wanted to share a couple of them with you. I thought they were hilarious. Uh, one of them is, I keep referring to my husband as co-worker at home, trying to call meetings about the dishes in the sink. He got mouthy about it, and I said I'd write him up for insubordination. I think he's really enjoying working from home and the extra time with me. I thought that was funny. Day three of working from home, I just walked by the kitchen and said, crazy weather we've been having. Any big plans for the weekend? To my wife. Third tweet that I really love about people working from home, seeing each other all the time during this COVID pandemic. The husband's working from home confirms one, confirms one thing. He does nothing in the office other than being an irritant. <laughs> I like that. Apparently, some of those folks were present with others just a little too much. Well, the next leg of our journey through the Old Testament, and specifically seeing Jesus through the eyes of the Old Testament, brings us to a moment, a physical structure, actually, that's all about presence. In Exodus chapter 25, when the nation of Israel is still at Mount Sinai, remember now they've been freed, liberated, redeemed from 430 years in slavery in Egypt. They've now crossed the Red Sea and journeyed southeast to Mount Sinai. While at Mount Sinai, in Exodus chapter 25, God commands Moses to tell the people to bring an offering. And I love the way that God says this. He said, whatever they have on their heart. This is not an obligatory offering. He's not you know, saying, you better do this. He's saying, whatever you have on your heart, bring it. And, and you could bring this thing or that thing or this thing or that thing. He gives some examples. And they begin to bring offerings to God via Moses. And in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, God says to Moses, Listen very closely because this is so critical. Then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Let me read that one more time. Exodus 25 verse 8 and 9. Then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern 
I will show you. Wow. If you understand what's really going on there, this is a, whew, really? kind of verse. Because up to this point in human history, gods were always somewhere out there. False gods, of course, but people uh, perceived of gods, understood gods as being way out there. Now, they would have physical representations of those gods, you know, on the earth or, you know, in their homes or in their cities or whatever, but gods did not dwell with people. But here, the one true God, the only God, Yahweh, says that he wants his people to make a tabernacle for him. You may be familiar with that word, but you may not know what it means. It literally means to dwell. God is asking his people to make for him a dwelling place. God says in Exodus 25, verse 8, I will dwell among them. God desired to be present with his people. Man, oh man, we're, we're going to talk all about the tabernacle. We're going to talk about the measurements and the symbolism and all that stuff. But just let that sink in a little bit, that God desired to be present with his people. And it wasn't just a desire. It was a desire that he acted upon, that he sacrificed for, that he, that he moved on and said, build a sanctuary, a special place where I can dwell, a tabernacle. Now, let's talk about what that tabernacle was. Because you might have noticed at the end of verse nine, God says, make all the furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And in subsequent verses and chapters, he lays out the pattern very, very clearly. Uh, God and the nation of Israel uh, really liked bells and smells. I, I heard a Catholic priest tell me that one time, uh, explaining to me as an evangelical what happens in a Catholic worship service. He said, us Catholics like bells and smells. I'm like, what does that mean? He goes, well, sounds and incense and different things, and they all have symbols. I thought, wow, that's a really helpful way to explain that. Thank you very much. The nation of Israel also liked, liked bells and smells. What I mean by that is that symbolism had a great deal of importance in Israelite culture. So everything within the tabernacle would have a deep meaning. So stick with me here. This is what the tabernacle looked like. It was 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. So 150 feet long, 75 foot wide, and seven and a half foot tall, and it was kind of a tent, as it were. Uh, just as you entered the tabernacle on the east side, that was a 30-foot entrance, and you would enter through a, a kind of a, a veil that was made of three different colors of yarn, blue, purple, and red. Now, I explained to you already that everything had symbolism. Uh, that yarn color, stipulated by God, by the way, he said, use this color, represented something as well. The blue represented God's divinity. The purple represented his royalty. And the red represented his holiness. So each Israelite that entered into this tented dwelling place for God, 150 feet long, 75 foot wide, and seven and a half foot high, would enter through this 
30-foot entrance and be reminded of God's divinity, royalty, and holiness on their way in. Once you enter, you would be in what's called the outer court or the atrium of the tabernacle, and you would see two things. The first thing you would see is an altar. That altar was rather large. It was seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half foot deep, and four and a half feet tall. Rather large, and it was made of bronze. This was the place where an Israelite would make their sacrifice before God. This was a place where sacrifices were happening over and over and over again. Just beyond that altar was something called a laver. A laver is simply a washing basin. And it was a place where priests could wash their hands before they entered into the next section of the temple. And it reminded them of their need for consecration, right? They couldn't just approach God willy-nilly and just, you know, bound right in, you know, like, a, you know, Misha, my dog, when she greets me in the morning. No, 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 no. They had to take their time. They had to make a sacrifice. They had to wash their hands. There was ritual cleansing that happened before they could approach the throne of God. And now speaking of the throne of God, the next section of this tabernacle within the outer atrium or the outer court was a place called the holy place. The holy place was 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high, and it existed within the context of the greater tabernacle. And in the holy place, there were a couple of things there. First, there was the table of showbread. Table of showbread, that's, that's weird. Uh, the, the word in Hebrew is literally bread of the face. Uh, th this table was three feet long, a foot and a half high, and two and a quarter feet deep, and it was completely covered in gold. And on that table, there was bread at all times that was replaced very regularly. Literally the bread of the face. In other words, God wanted his priest to know, I am present with you. This bread represents my presence with you. I am here. I'm not distant. I'm in your midst. This is my dwelling place. The second thing within that holy place that's, again, 45 foot long and 15 feet wide and 15 feet high was incense that was burning all the time. So the incense altar was about a foot and a half square and three feet high. And listen, Psalm 141 verse 2 says, May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. So now this altar of incense represents the prayers of the people. Finally, there was a third item in the holy place, and that holy place, and that third item was a lampstand. Now the lampstand was 75 pounds, 75 pounds, and made completely out of pure gold. It had seven lights on it, one in the center and three on either side. And it was fashioned, again, as stipulated by God, fashioned to look like an almond branch. Now, we'll get here in a minute, but 
Aaron's staff, I'll explain that in a minute, was in the most holy place, and it was also an almond branch. Well, why an almond branch? It's because almond branches are the earliest to bloom in Palestine. In other words, when they looked at that lampstand with seven lights burning on it, the nation of Israel were to remember that God hastens to keep his promises. Now, you may have noticed that I said the altar and the laver in the outer atrium were made of bronze. But just inside the holy place, those three items, the table of showbread, the incense, and the lampstand were made of gold. This was to symbolize to the Israelites that you are getting closer and closer to the very place where God dwells as the materials became more and more precious as you entered into this third place in the tabernacle. And you may have heard of this third place. It's called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. Now, a priest would have entered in from the holy place into the Holy of Holies through a veil. That veil was about 15 feet high. We're not sure how thick it was, but probably about four inches. And it was fashioned to kind of look like a maze. So you had to kind of go back and forth and back and forth. People didn't kind of accidentally stumble into the holy place, the most holy place, the holy of holies. In fact, only one person, only one time a year, just the high priest could enter the most holy place in order to sacrifice on behalf of the people. Well, this most holy place, the Holy of Holies, was 15 foot by 15 foot by 15 foot square. It sat within the holy place, and the holy place sat within the greater tabernacle. And inside the Holy of Holies, there were three critical items. First, there was the Ark of the Covenant. God tells the nation of Israel to build this ark, and he stipulates exactly how big it is. He says, I want two cherubim over the ark, uh, this box, essentially. And on the top, I want what's called a mercy seat or a cover that's translucent. And then inside the box, I want you to put three things. One, the Ten Commandments. They represented God's law, his covenant with the nation of Israel through Moses. Number two, put Aaron's staff in there. Now, I can't, I don't have time to kind of tell you the story here, but God had chosen Aaron as his priest. In other words, Aaron represented the people to God, right? He went to God on behalf of the people, and that was the only person that did that and his lineage after him. And so God says, take Aaron's staff that had miraculously budded, again, an almond tree, and place it inside the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder of my priesthood. Finally, take some of the manna that I provided for you in the wilderness as your daily bread, put it in an urn, and put it in the Ark of the Covenant. So what you had inside the most holy place was this sacred box that God had commanded to be made of acacia wood and covered and plated in pure gold. Inside that box were three things, the law, the representation of the priesthood, and a representation of God's provision. So, 
I know we just got a lot of information, but let's review. God commands the nation of Israel, bring an offering in order to build a dwelling place for me. Again, at this particular time and place, this would have been a shocker that any God, much less the one true God, would want to dwell with his people. This dwelling place is called a tabernacle. It was 75 feet wide, 150 feet long, and had a 30-foot entrance on the eastern side. Just as you came in, there was an altar for sacrifice and a laver for ceremonial washing. Then there was a smaller tent inside called the holy place. And inside the holy place, there was the holy of holies, the most holy place, where only one person, just the high priest, could enter once a year. Inside that holy place, the Bible says, the most holy place, is where the very presence of God dwelt. In fact, we'll find out here in a minute that God dwelt with his people on top of that most holy place as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night in order to guide and direct them. The Old Testament word there is Shekinah. It's God's very presence. It's the intensity of all His glory dwelling with His people in the most holy place. The Ark of the Covenant was so sacred and that which was inside was so sacred because God was dwelling with his people. It's not about the physical materials. It's that God said, I want to be with you. I want you to experience me. I want to guide and direct you. I want to remind you of my presence with you. And anytime the nation of Israel would move that tabernacle would go with them. In fact, what happened is the pillar of cloud, God's manifested glory, or the pillar of fire by night would move. And that was the sign to break camp, to pull up the pegs of the tabernacle, to follow that pillar of cloud. And when the pillar of cloud stopped, they'd reconstruct the tabernacle and there they were again. When the pillar of fire moved at night, even if it was in the middle of the night, they'd pick up stakes, strike camp, and move right along. God was directing them and he used the tabernacle to do it. So the tabernacle becomes so unbelievably critical as a representation for a couple of things in the Old Testament. One, God was present with his people. God was present with his people. No other God had done this. But God, Yahweh, wanted to be near to his people. Number two, God provided for his people. Remember that jar of manna? It was a reminder that God had provided in the wilderness. Remember the altar of sacrifice. God provided a way for his people to approach him. Remember that one time a year when a high priest came in to sacrifice one animal on behalf of all the people's sins so all sins could be wiped away. That is God's provision. So not only was God present with his people, but God provided for his people. And finally, God guided his people. The tabernacle was a reminder of God's guidance. Why? Because anytime that pillar of fire or pillar of cloud moved, the people would pick up the tabernacle and move with it. Once again, this became such 
a critical piece of God's people's identity in the Old Testament. For the Hebrew people, for the nation of Israel, there was no replacement for the tabernacle. There was no forgetting the tabernacle. In fact, more than 50 chapters in the Old Testament mention or talk about the tabernacle. I cannot overstate how important it was that God was present with, providing for, and guiding his people via the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Now, we've asked this question every week for the last several weeks. Here it is. You may uh, know what's coming already. What does this have to do with Jesus? In order to answer that question, I'm actually going to read an extended uh, portion of Scripture. It's Hebrews chapter 9, and it's from the Message Version, just because I feel like it's a little more readable. I know there's quite a bit here, but I need you to tune your brain in, because this is the answer of what this has to do with Jesus, and then we'll kind of unpack it as we go. Hebrews chapter 9 reads this way. That first plan contained directions for worship, and specifically a designed place for worship. He's talking about the tabernacle. A larger outer tent was set up. The lampstand, the table, the bread of presence were placed in it. This was called the holy place. Then a curtain was stretched, and behind it, a smaller inside tent set up. This was called the Holy of Holies. In it were the gold incense altar and the gold-covered ark of the covenant containing a gold urn of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, the covenant tablets, and the angel-wing-shadowed mercy seat. But we don't have time to comment on these now. After this was set up, the priests went about their duties in the large tent, and only the high priest entered the smaller inside tent, and then only once a year, offering a blood sacrifice for his own sins and the people's accumulated sins. This was the Holy Spirit's way of showing a visible parable that as long as that large tent stands, people can't just walk in on God. Under this system, the gifts and sacrifices can't really get to the heart of the matter. They can't assuage the conscience of the people, but are limited to matters of ritual and behavior. It's, a it's essentially a temporary arrangement until a complete overhaul could be made. We get it so far. We've just talked all about the tabernacle. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in verse 11. But when the Messiah arrived, high priest of the superior things of this new covenant, he bypassed the old tent and all the trappings in this created world and went straight into heaven's tent, the true holy place, once and for all. He also bypassed the sacrifices of goat and calf blood, instead using his own blood as the price to set us free once and for all. If that animal blood and the other rituals of purification were effective in cleaning up certain matters of our religion and behavior, think how much more the blood of Christ cleans up our whole lives inside and out. Through the Spirit, Christ offered Himself as an unblemished sacrifice, freeing us from all those dead-end efforts 
to make ourselves respectable so that we can live all out for God. So what is the author of Hebrews doing here? Well, it's probably pretty clear. The author of Hebrews is telling us that the tabernacle is the old system. The priesthood is the old system. Animal sacrifices are the old system. But when Jesus came, he instituted a new system that was based on that old template. Jesus is the high priest that enters a heavenly tabernacle, not an earthly tabernacle, on our behalf. Jesus, instead of offering the blood of an animal, offers his own blood. Jesus, the Messiah, becomes this new tabernacle for us. Now, let's unpack it even further, shall we? The first thing uh, that I want you to jot down, if you're taking notes here, is that Jesus is God's total presence with his people. Jesus is God's total presence with his people. Remember, we talked about the tabernacle being the place where God dwelt. He said, I want to be present with my people, so build me a place to be present. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Remember, we talked about the bread of the presence as stipulated in Exodus 25, 30 to remind the nation of Israel that God was always present with them. Well, check this out. If you've read John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Skip down to verse 14. And the Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, quite literally, is tabernacled. That's really what that word is. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We talked about the great lengths that God has gone through in order to be present with His people. Whether it was His people in the Old Testament after having disobeyed at Mount Sinai after 430 years in slavery in Egypt, after wandering through the desert and all that stuff, God still makes a way to be present with His people. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even more, Christ came for us. He took on flesh. He tabernacled. He dwelt among us. No matter how far from God you are, He wants to be present with you. If you're jotting notes down, please jot it down. When you're wandering far, God is still near. When you're wandering far, God is still near. He continues to draw near to you. He did it in the Old Testament through the tabernacle. He did it in the New Testament through His very Son that became flesh. And He continues to do it through the Spirit that indwells every believer and calls the world to repent and be near to Him. He's done it through the blood of Christ so that you can approach that Holy of Holies. He wants to be near to you. When you're wandering far, God is still near. 
Friends, I remember a time uh, when I was in university where I felt very, very far from God. Felt disillusioned, felt lost, felt confused. And I told one of my uh, best friends, a guy I still talk to on a very regular basis, uh, it's been 20 years now. I said, God sure doesn't want to talk to me. You know, I'm a mess. I, I'm far from him. I, my life's a mess. I, you know, I, I, I forget about him. I'm apathetic. And my friend's response was, perhaps that's the time that God wants to speak with you the most. Hmm. Even though you might want, not want to speak with him, perhaps this is the time where he wants to speak with you the most. His statement was correct. His statement is biblically defensible. God has always been pursuing his people to be present with them. And he wants to be present with you no matter how far away you feel you've wandered. Jesus is this new tabernacle dwelling, God dwelling with us, with his people. Number two, Jesus is God's total provision for his people. Jesus is God's total provision for his people. And, and, and we mean that in two ways. Jesus provides a way for us to approach the Father, and Jesus provides everything that we need for life and godliness. So let's do that first part for, first. Uh, Jesus is God's provision for his people. He provides a way for us to approach the Father. Now remember in the tabernacle, what separated the people from that most holy place was their sin. One person, only one time a year, went in and offered a sacrifice on behalf of all the people. So just kind of the regular folks like you and me, we couldn't go into that most holy place. We couldn't pass through the veil. But check this out. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 38, tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, that veil that began in the tabernacle and was at that time in the temple was rent in two, completely torn from top to bottom. You're talking about a very thick piece of fabric, very tall, built to be sturdy, built to keep people out, and it was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing now that Jesus' blood provides a way for us to approach God. So when the author of Hebrews is talking all about this tabernacle stuff and approaching God, listen to what the author of Hebrews says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way he opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and a full assurance of faith, full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, since God has provided a way, you can now bound up to the throne of God like Misha bounds up to me in the morning. We don't say that flippantly or irreverently, but the author of Hebrews uses words like confidence, a full assurance. Our hearts have been sprinkled. We've been cleansed from a guilty conscience. We can run into the throne room of God. Why? Because he's provided a way. The curtain, the veil has been torn and we have total and complete access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Second, 
God doesn't just provide a way for us to approach him, but God's, God provides for our daily needs. So when Jesus comes along and he says something like, you know, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God or of himself, he says, I am the bread of life. He is hearkening back to the table of showbread, the bread of the presence. He's saying, I am the very nourishment of God present with you. And he continues to be present with us through his indwelling spirit. And he will provide for all of our needs. The Bible says we have everything we need for faith and godliness. Jesus provides. So if you're jotting notes down, would you jot this down? That God will always provide. In our house, uh, Amy and I have this little saying, it's God is never late, but he is very rarely early. (laughs) More often than not, he provides right on time. He's already provided a way for you to approach him and come into his throne room with confidence. But what is it that you're praying for right now? How can God provide for you right now? Are you in financial trouble? Do you need a friend? Are you struggling with your mental health? Do you need a job? Do you need to feel nearer to God and feel settled in your spirit? He has provided a way. Keep calling on him. Keep going to him. He's never late. He's very rarely early, but he will provide. Number three, just as the tabernacle provided guidance for the people of God, Jesus and now his spirit provides total guidance for God's people. Listen to Exodus 25 verse 22. God is talking about the tabernacle here. He says, there I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, remember that's the lid on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, and I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. He says to Moses, I'm going to talk to you there. I'm going to guide you there. I'm going to give you instruction there. He says something similar again in Exodus chapter 40, especially related to this pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. In Exodus 40, uh, verse 34, it says, The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And listen, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day it was taken up. The cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. You know, this is not abnormal. Uh, Still in modern day caravans across the Middle East, they'll burn things that put off a lot of smoke during the day so that you can see the leader of the caravan. And at nighttime, if that group of people is still walking, they would burn something that, that puts off a lot of fire so it's visible at nighttime. This is not abnormal. This is God employing some of those same tactics to guide his people. Uh, That word cloud actually could be translated cause to be made visible. God is giving himself to his people. He's making himself sensible, visible, legible, understandable, perceivable to his people. He wanted them to know that his guiding 
presence was with them and accompanied them in all their journeys. He wanted to make it clear, when the cloud moves, you move. When the fire moves, you move. And if they stay put, you stay put. God provided a way to guide his people. He does the same thing now in Jesus through his spirit. He guides us. This is why James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. Did you know that? That God wants to give you wisdom and give generously? And when he gives it to you, when you ask and you sense that the spirit of God is moving you, follow. Pick up camp, strike camp and move and follow God in whatever direction he's leading. And I know that first step of faith can be scary sometimes in those ways in which God is leading you. But I've heard it said before, just take your first step of faith. You don't have to see the whole staircase. I would agree with that. When God moves and there's a step of faith to be taken, you follow and know and know that God will keep his promise and always be present with you. I'm so grateful for all the symbolism of the tabernacle, for all the ways in which it helps us understand Jesus' role as high priest, his role as the sacrifice, his role in breaking open for us this most holy place where Yahweh dwells. Most importantly today, I want you to know that Jesus is present with you just as God was present with his people in and through the tabernacle. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He's present with you at work. He's present with you in that hospital room. He's present with you in that courtroom. He's present with you in your loneliness and your joy. He's present with you and he doesn't get tired of you. Like some of us have got tired of the faces that we're looking at during COVID. He doesn't get tired of you. He takes joy in you. He wants to be present with you all the time, so much so that he gave his very life and shed his very blood in order to do so. He loves you so much and he's present with you today. I pray that you're reminded about God's presence with you through Jesus as we've studied the tabernacle together. Let's pray. God, thank you that no matter where we go or what we do, you are always there. God, help us to understand that your presence with us isn't looking over our shoulder to make sure that we're not messing up and doing everything right, but your presence with us is side by side, arm in arm. And as the kind of the cliche poem says, there are moments when we're not side by side, arm in arm. There are moments when you just pick us up and carry us, but you are always present. May that truth bring comfort and joy to each of us today. In Christ's name, amen.